welcome to Rescue Replay. My name is Kala and I'm your host. I am thrilled to be on episode three. So I heard this, this stat before I started this podcast. 90% of podcasts don't make it past episode three. And then of the podcasts that do make it past episode three, 90% of those podcasts don't make it past episode 21. So I feel like I've gotten over the first little hurdle little milestone, little, you know, gold gold star, brownie points, like just giving myself a little pat on the back. And I couldn't have done it without you guys, my listeners, my students, my supporters, my network. I just, I'm super grateful and thanks for tuning in and always supporting me. So thank you. Today, I have a story for you. This story really is kind of what opened my eyes to rescuing. I was already a trained rescuer, but I had no rescues under my belt. So when I got my first one, which it was a doozy, I was like, okay, wow, this is really what it what it's all about. I, I was 18, so I was quite young, you know, and I became a lifeguard when I was 16. So I was still like 18 is quite young. And this situation really showed me like what the critical incident stress piece can look act and feel like and now that it's been so many years since i've performed in that rescue i can speak on like kind of how it goes through time and how the situation changes or at least your feelings about the situation changes So I used to work in at the Glencoe Club in Calgary. It's a country club and there's eight different sports facilities. And the first responders were the lifeguards. We were the first responders for the whole building. So we would get called out to, you know, the tennis courts or the basketball courts, the hockey rink, and we would do first aids all over the building. Well, we get a call on the radio one day and they're like, oh, somebody is in the tennis courts. They're not having a good time. I actually, honestly, I don't even remember what the call was. I just know that it was a medical in the tennis courts. So I was like, okay, I'll go. And we all had radios. So I had a radio with me. I took the this big trauma kit and I took this oxygen tank. So I'm like full, like I probably have like 25 pounds worth of gear with me. And I'm walking around, this building is huge, like as a maze, you know, in this building trying to get to the tennis courts, which I had never been to at that point yet. And I really didn't know where I was going. So I was kind of lollygagging. And then halfway, like as I'm on route, I get this call over the radio. Oh, they're doing CPR on the guy. Like he's not breathing. You got to get there. I'm like, okay, wow. So I start running. And thankfully I find that, the tennis courts and I asked the guy, I was like, hey, where, there was a guy in the hallway. I was like, where are they, which direction? And he's like, right here. And so then I turned this corner, I'm in the tennis courts and the guy is laying on the ground. He's all the way across the tennis courts and his friend is doing CPR on him as I'm approaching. And I don't know what happened to me at this moment because we always practice like, you know, with, gear and stuff so 
I saw the person on the ground. I dropped my trauma kit and I dropped the oxygen. It was like I entered and it was like I couldn't run with this or I couldn't keep walking with this. I'm not sure what what I was thinking, but I left all of my gear out of out of reach and I ran across the tennis courts and I like fell to my knees and I just like landmarked on his chest and I started compressing. And I remember looking at my hands and looking back at the trauma kit and thinking to myself like, shit, <laughs> I don't have any gloves on. And I was like, and then I did it again. I looked back at my trauma kit and looked at the guy. This time I looked at his face and I thought to myself like, shit, I don't have a pocket mask. So all I could do was compression only CPR, which, you know, I'm thinking about it now. It's actually really comical that <laughs> I left all of the gear. I brought it with me, but then I left it in a place where I couldn't, I didn't have access to it. Like way to go. You know what? It was probably a blessing in disguise because as I was compressing, like I was looking at this guy's face and nobody briefed me on this fact. If you are doing CPR on someone, you are doing CPR on a dead body. They are clinically dead. So you are touching and you are listening and you are looking at somebody that is clinically dead. Now that is a mental trip. So I'm compressing and I'm looking at this guy's face and his eyes are like, there. you know when... Uh, milk goes sour and it's kind of that like milky frothy like <laughs> gooey consistency well that's what the whites of his eyes looked like and there was this film that just it just overtook the entire eyeball and the color was gone and it was this really like muted gray and it was like his eyes were rolling back into his head and then his skin was kind of turning this like yellowy green with all of his, um, like his freckles. They were kind of like turning this like weird dark gray color and the skin was, it, it was like separating from the bone. It was almost like it was melting off his face and his lips were like purple and blue, had all these like little speckles and Every time I was compressing the chest, his body was like, <gasps> because there is this like involuntary movement of oxygen in his chest cavity as I was compressing. And I remember thinking to myself, and like, I couldn't take my eyes off the guy. I'm just like starstruck by this guy. And I just remember thinking in my head, like, that is so gross. Like, wow, this is gross. <laughs> And I'm still compressing. And my backup, I so all the while things are happening over the radio, but I'm like, you know in the movies when the hearing goes out and it's all this ringing and all the talking kind of goes muffled? That's what it's like. And I'm just like hyper-focused on this body right now. So my backup did end up coming. There was a call over the radio to get backup to me. And my backup picked up all of my gear that I left. And, you know, she brought it to to the scene and she did everything as like your steps outline like she went into the first aid kit she put on her gloves she got the pocket mask out and i remember thinking in my brain when she got there i remember thinking like 
would you hurry up? <laughs> like this guy needs oxygen. Like, can you like, you know, cause the gloves were, her hands were sweaty. So the gloves were sticking. She was, so it took her a little bit to get the gloves on and it was her first like CPR situation too. So she's nervous and things are, are happening high pressure. And, but I remember thinking like, just so matter of factly, like, would you hurry up? <laughs> like, come on, this guy, <laughs> this guy needs you. Like, meanwhile, like this was all like, <laughs> he could have been getting vents if I had remembered to bring this whole trauma kit. You know, and I, it sounds like, you know, that we weren't doing our best or that, you know, that, that I, I had made a, a critical error. Well, the stats with CPR, like CPR alone, you're, at a 5% survival rate, like bringing somebody back with just CPR alone, you're at a 5% survival rate. And in our training, in our standards, like if you don't have a pocket mask, which I did not have a pocket mask, you are to do compression only CPR because what CPR is doing is it's just pumping the blood through the body, feeding all of the organs with all of the oxygen that's in the bloodstream. And even with my compressions, there's already an involuntary movement of oxygen going in and out of the body anyways. So this happened and she starts breathing. The EMS rolls in and I also remember this. He is walking behind me and he's like, hey, my name is Ryan. I'll be your medic. You're doing a great job. I need you to go a little faster. And by this point, I'd just been compressing for probably about like eight to 10 minutes. And remember, like I had ran into the scene with like extra weight on and I was, you know, carrying all this weight around. So I was already a little bit gassed by the, well, not, I wouldn't say gassed, but I had already had physically exerted myself by the time I got there. And this guy that I was doing CPR on, he was an older senior, and I was like thrusting my entire body weight into this chest cavity to try and compress it enough. Like the, my knees were coming off the turf. Like that's how hard I was thrusting. And he walks in, you know, all calm, like, like they do, like they're supposed to, they're trained to do it that way. And he's just like, yeah, can you just go a little bit faster? And here I'm back in my head and I'm like, faster are you are you freaking for real right now like how am I supposed to go faster like you know and so I kind of was beaking off in my head about him or at him while I'm compressing like I can't verbally talk or stop or, or think about anything else but compressing and then just like internalizing all of the other things that are happening his partner sets up the AED machine and the oxygen because our AED never arrived. Our AED is left with our duty managers at a central part of the building and EMS. By the time the duty manager got to the AED and was on his way, EMS had arrived. So they set up their AED and their oxygen and she took over breathing quite quickly. So my partner got relieved quite quickly. And then the other guy, the same gentleman, Brian, he comes in and he's like, you're, you're still doing great. I'm almost ready. Just go a little bit faster. So again, he tells me go a little bit faster. And I'm just like losing it in my brain at this guy. Like, what the hell, how am I supposed to go faster? Like, 
And then eventually he took over and he said, like, I'm ready after this compression set. And I fell off the chest and he took over and they whisked the body away. And I'm like on the ground and I, I like pancaked on the ground. And I've never felt so jelly in my entire life. You know, when you go to the gym, you have a really good leg day and, you know, your legs are all wobbly when you come off the weights or you stop squatting or whatever it is that you're doing times that jelly by like a hundred and that's like I literally just melted into the floor and I was like oh my gosh did this just happen did that really just happen like wow and this is where critical incident stress and like understanding like your body's response to these emergencies because I was 18 so I was 18 that was back in 2008. Yeah. Yeah. 18, 2008. So back then, critical incident stress for lifeguards, at least, like maybe it was different for first responders and EMS and things like that. But critical incident stress for lifeguards wasn't really a thing. We didn't really talk about it. And my only experience in lifeguarding with, that would have talked about it would have been my NL course, which was two years prior to that. It's not like you walk into your, into your workplace and they're like, oh, so this is our critical incident stress training. And it wasn't back then. It is moving in that direction now, which is a really lovely thing to see. So after that had all settled down, my boss was like, wow, you did a great job. You go take the rest of the day off. You do not have to go back to work and just go rest, take care of yourself and give us a call tomorrow and we'll talk about how we're going to proceed. And I was like, yeah, okay. So they thought they were doing me a really big favor. Well, the first thing I did was I took my keys out of my pocket and I put them into my car ignition. You know, well, actually, before I, I did that, but then I remember sitting in the parking lot, I actually called my mother and I probably talked to my mom in my car in the parking lot at work, like right away after the incident for probably about an hour, maybe more. I, cause I was like, you know, I was shaking, right? I didn't know what was happening, but I was like shaking. Then I drove myself home, which was not, a good thing like luckily I lived not too close or not too far from the pool so driving yourself home after a situation like that not ideal okay you always you want to try and get somebody to come pick them up or uber taxi whatever because they can be a hazard on the road to everybody else right shock definitely can set in in a delayed effect for sure so not too smart there then later that night, I, my partner at the time, he was a drummer in a rock band, you know, classic 18-year-old dating a drummer in a rock band. And I, he had band practice that night. So I went to the liquor store, I bought a case of beer, and I went out to their band, band practice that night. Again, not the things that you want to do after a situation like that. But nobody told me. There was no education about like, hey, this leads into like toxic behaviors or 
you know, this is where addictions are created, or this is how we appropriately, appropriately deal with our stress of, of an emergency. You know, that, that wasn't part of the education that we got. Or if it was, it was very brief and not very detailed, you know. Luckily for me, though, alcohol and substance abuse has never really been a thing. It's never really been attractive. I mean, momentarily, like when you first turn 18 and or, you know, you're 21 in Vegas, like, you know, whatever, all of those times. Yeah, but it never stuck. Like I, I don't depend on drinking. I don't need drinking and I can quit and start and, and stop and whatever, whenever. It's not a thing for me. So luckily I was okay, but I do know people where they experience things like that. And this is where addiction begins. I actually have an ex-lifeguard friend. I don't know where she is now. I think about her almost all the time. She had to do CPR on her father and she couldn't come back to being a lifeguard. That just really shook her. I mean, CPR alone can be shaking to do it on your father. Like, yeah, that's pretty wild. And she actually had an even harsher background. She was a correctional officer before she became a lifeguard. And she was married once and she was married to a, a really abusive guy. And I guess her dad kind of like pulled her out of it and saved her life. And so she had this like this really close connected relationship with her dad. So I'm sure that's more why she can go back to lifeguarding. But I remember she was also a stone sober. And after that, she started drinking and then she eventually stopped communicating with me and she fell off the face of the earth. So I don't even know where she is, but I do know that that was a really tough one for her and dealing with the stress was overwhelming and she ended up turning to alcohol, which is not good. When it comes to critical incident stress, one of my favorite quotes, and well, it's not even a quote. It's something that I say. It's, I'm quoting myself. Can I say that? Can I? Let's do that. I'm quoting myself. But one thing that I really like to get my candidates comfortable with is become comfortable with the uncomfortable. Get comfortable with the uncomfortable. And I quote that a lot, and I say that a lot during our training because high pressure situations are uncomfortable. Luckily for us, we're trained for it. So we kind of go into this like zombie mode, like it's go time, you know, afterwards, the aftermath, that's what's uncomfortable for rescuers. Because remember when you're a rescuer, first responder, however it is that you, you provide your rescue service to society, you have this part in your head, like, Remember what, what the definition of rescue is, is to get somebody out of a dangerous situation. So, you know, and a, a lot of times you see it as like an ego inflation thing and they're like, oh, like the hero aspect. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not, there's no room for, for that actually. It's, it dies off quickly. Those rescuers don't, don't last long, you know. But you have this sense of like, I can handle situations and I can handle them well enough to get others out of them that could potentially cause them danger, right? So when we have that and we provide that as a service to our communities, 
we think that we're the ones that you call for help. So the aftermath of that, when we start to realize that we can't take care of our own, like on our own, like that hyper-independence, which is a, can be very toxic in large doses. But sometimes it's hard for us to admit that we can't help ourselves, you know? So the aftermath of these rescues can be quite uncomfortable. What's really important to know here is there's something very specific that's happening in your brain while this is all happening. And if we can break it down and if we can rationalize it, then we can observe how our body is responding to it emotionally as well. And then we can start to realize our or pick out our critical incident stress management pattern, right? So for me, for example, when I experience a, a, an emotional trauma or a rescue and I am have critical incident stress to deal with now, the first thing that I do is I, I numb. I go deer in the headlights and I just kind of go numb and I monotone and I kind of go into this lull. Like I'm a little bit of a zombie, not really paying attention and I'll stay like that for a little bit because and integrate back, you know, into reality because it's quite a mental warp. And once I start integrating back into reality and start like opening up my senses to reality again, this is when, you know, all of the the unprocessed emotions, that's when they start to enter. And this is where it starts to get a little uncomfortable. So what's happening in the brain? is you see something, you've witnessed something, or you're getting called to something. Even if you're getting briefed on something, there's no, you can mentally prepare yourself, but sometimes the what you're walking into is so, so out of this world that it's it's a shock, right? It's that shock factor. So when you see that, your conscious mind immediately is like, whoa, that's a lot. That's way more than the, the normal quid pro quo that I'm used to. I can't think about this right now. There's too many moving factors. So I've got to go. Because we overthink all of our decisions, like what we're going to have for breakfast, what we're going to wear that day. We overthink all of these things. So in a high-pressure situation, your conscious mind is smarter than you and knows that it stands no chance in this situation. Luckily for us, we have the amygdala, which is your reptilian part of the brain. It's the oldest part of your brain. It's the first part of your brain that develops while you're in the fetus. Okay? It turns on. It's like, oh, conscious mind is out. That's okay. I'm the survival mind. So I will come in, I will save the day, whatever it takes to survive. Now your amygdala has three modes, your fight, flight, or freeze, which we've, we've talked about this, we've heard these terms often. When you're fighting in these situations, it means that you're responding as a rescuer. It means that you're, you're doing CPR, you're you're repelling from ropes to grab somebody from a high angle rock face. 
you are performing. Flighting means that you look at a situation and you either back away or you just straight up walk away. Now, when you're at work, like if you were a lifeguard on shift, you can't really do that. You have what's called a duty of care to uphold. But if you were walking down the street corner and somebody collapsed right in front of you and was overdosing here in Vancouver, BC, because that happens, you could just keep walking by and not do one thing. You don't even have to look at them twice and nobody's going to do anything about it. Nobody can legally. Somebody might just because, but nobody can legally. Then you have your freeze, which this is usually accompanies almost every rescue. You're kind of like, oh, okay, what do I do next? Or you totally blank. You know, you know when you write those tests that you <laughs> that you think you study for and you think you're gonna do such a good job, and then the test comes and your whole mind just goes blank. That's exactly what happens. You just totally freeze and you're like, oh, okay, what do I do next? Hopefully you don't stay in the frozen part too long. But sometimes people do stay in the frozen part and this is where their critical incident stress starts because it's just such a shell shock that they're like, I can't, I'm totally frozen, I can't do this. You know, people who have panic attacks can identify with that feeling that they panic so hard that anxious gets, anxiety gets to them so much that they are just frozen. That can happen. What's really important to understand about these three modes is they are all 100% completely and utterly natural. And every mode is possible for every person. You're never going to override the option to like freeze or flight. You're never going to train enough to be good enough to override this 100% of the time. A really good Hollywood depiction of this is if you've ever seen The Guardian, with Kevin Costner and Ashton Kutcher. Such a great movie. I love this movie for just the principles of rescuing. And I love that Kevin Costner is all about providing a service for other people. I mean, I think that he ignores other areas of his life, which you can see in the movie, his wife leaves him, which is not, you know, a healthy way to conduct your yourself. However, I love the rescue side of things in this movie. And so Kevin Costner, he is out on this rescue and it totally, you know, not to, not to have any spoiler alerts, but it does not go well. It ends extremely badly and he survives. This guy, the character that he plays, he's like, oh, holds all of these world records, all of this. He's had this many saves, like he's really quite a decorated rescuer and swimmer for the ocean search and rescue team that he's on and this situation really got to him mentally and the next rescue he went in he went in with he freezes and he totally chokes and his partner who is Ashton Kutcher has to come and rescue him and he's like oh what happened and you know he doesn't open up he's not transparent about it he has that mentality of like oh no, like I can do it, it's whatever, it's no big deal. And, you know, you'll never get past or get so good that you are above those three modes. 
they are always there and they are always possible. And I'm not saying that because it's like, oh, so expect this to happen because you're not good enough. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that even if you're that good, you can still experience all three of these modes. Important because we often, again, take on that responsibility that others are depending on us. We have to be stronger, bigger, braver, more courageous, better leader so that everybody else is safe. If I don't do it, nobody can kind of thing. And it can be a defeating feeling for a rescuer if they're like, oh, I totally froze. I totally choked. Well, I've been a rescuer for 16 years and I've choked sometimes, you know, not for long, but I have choked. I have choked completely too. You know, I'm not, I'm not any exception to this. The last thing that the amygdala does is it's like, well, I don't have any emotional processing capabilities. That's all in the conscious mind. But they're not here right now. They've checked out. So I should do something. I should videotape everything so that when the conscious mind is ready, they can watch what happened in the situation. And this is where the discomfort will really start to set in. When the amygdala is video recording everything, they are recording or it is recording all the sights, the smells, the sounds, all the situational details that we normally would look past. It is remembering every single one of them. No, nothing out of place. So when you come back and you integrate back into reality, you go through this shock, do this rescue, critical incident stress, and you're integrating yourself back into reality and your conscious mind is like, okay, yeah, uh, here's the quid pro quo, quo that I'm used to. I can handle this. Yeah, I think I got this. The amygdala is like, Kate, yeah, I'm happy to be of service. We'll uh, chat with you again. And then the conscious mind is like, okay, so like I'm going to make breakfast like a normal person and I'm going to go for a run or a swim like a normal person. I got some laundry to do and all it. So you just start going about your days, you know, naturally. And then it's usually when the conscious mind is like, okay, like it's time for me to rest. It's time for me to relax. And let's say you go to lay down on your couch, you go to have a bath, you go to have a shower. Then that's when the video will start to play. Your amygdala is like, oh, you're not busy. Here, watch this video. And this is where people will start to get flashbacks or you'll hear of stories they were dreaming about it and they just couldn't sleep anymore. They woke up in the sweats and all these things. And it's because they stop watching the video. Their natural response is to stop watching the video. And our ego, our rational mind is like, I've already experienced that. I don't need to keep reliving it. So I don't want to think about it. That was uncomfortable. Now, unfortunately, that's, it's not quite that simple. It's, it, that's not how it works. Every time you stop the video from playing, you are delaying 
and deepening the trauma from that rescue. My advice is that you let the video play. And when the video starts to play, you might only watch like 10 seconds of one section of the video one time or the entire video the next time or the last 20 seconds of the video the next time. Like you might not watch it start to finish. It might just be these little excerpts every once in a while. And every time you watch it or it plays, be prepared for a different reaction or a different response. For me, in my CPR situation that I had told you about, anger was really quite present. So when my partner was taking a while putting on the PPE, I was like yelling at her in my head when the EMS attendant was like telling me, oh, you have to go faster. I was again screaming at him, yelling at him in my head and he told like twice, you know. So my response in the moment was anger. And there's nothing wrong with that. Anger is not a negative emotion. Anger is just an emotional tool. Like everybody gets anger, angry and we need to stop this whole culture of like, oh, you're an angry person, you're a bad person. Well, no, anger serves as a really good tool. If you, you know, you obviously have to keep it in check. You can't just be raging all over the place, but my first emotional response was anger. And then my next one was like, I'd cry. And then the first time I started teaching this story or telling the story, I would like start shaking and there would be like a pit in my stomach. You know, every time you go through the motions, your response to it's a little bit different because there's so many things going on and there's so many moving parts. It's, it's, it would be like impossible to go through every little detail the first time you watch the video and to go through all of the emotions that you feel. One of the things that I made sure that I did as a rescuer after my CPR situation was I made sure that on my lunch breaks, I would like walk around that building and I went and sat in the tennis courts because I knew that there was a potential of me not wanting to go back to the tennis courts after experiencing that. We see that a lot. People are like, ooh, I had this experience and I don't ever want that again. So I'm just going to shut this door so I never have to even think about the possibility of experiencing it again. Well, as a rescuer, you don't get that. As a rescuer, you either quit your job so that you aren't involved in it or you realize that you just have to find a way to be okay with it and find a way to move past that. So I made a point of going in and sitting in the tennis courts on my breaks after that. And, oh man, the first couple of times, yeah, it was weird. But then it became okay. Again, just get comfortable with the uncomfortable. Put yourself in those uncomfortable situations. Allow yourself to be uncomfortable because when we're uncomfortable, then we can figure out what we need to get comfortable. It's a powerful life skill, powerful. And you don't have to lie about it either. You don't have to hide about it. You can tell people when you're uncomfortable and you can tell people your process. You can be transparent and you can let people 
learn from what you've learned from. Another reason why I like telling this story is because I dropped all of my equipment. <laughs> like rule number one, biggest rookie mistake ever. Do not drop your equipment. Take your equipment with you, you know, and find that like, you know, let it humble you. We're humans. We make mistakes. Let it humble you and find the humility with it. Eventually, it wasn't funny for a while, but now I, I think it's quite comical, especially when I think about all the other rescues I've done since then and kind of my background and where my career has gone. It's, it's, it keeps me humble and it allows me to, to be at peace with it and, and find the humor in it. All right, well, I'll leave it there for tonight. Thanks for tuning in. Join us next week for episode four as we continue on this rescue replay journey. And I hope you got something out of today. Send me, send me your comments. Hit like, follow, and share. Send me, DM me. Tell me about your rescues. What are some of the things that you've experienced in some of your intense rescues before? And how does it relate? And how, how were you able to get move past it? Where was the point? that you were able to move past it. All right, this is Rescue Replay, out.